0: Today on building the open metaverse, we do more on the internet than just entertain ourselves, than just socialize. We use the internet for work. We use the internet to build things. We use the internet uh, to operate uh, our companies and machinery and all all kinds of stuff. So all of those things are going to also be important in the metaverse. Welcome to building the open metaverse, where technology experts discuss how the community is building the open metaverse together. Hosted by Patrick Cozy from Cesium and Mark Petit from Epic Games.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to our show, Building the Open Metaverse, the podcast where technologists share their insight on how the community is building the open
2: metaverse together.
1: My name is Mark Petit from Epic Games, and my co-host is Patrick Cozy from Cesium. Patrick, how are you today?
2: Hey, Mark. I'm doing great. I've been looking forward to this episode for quite a while.
1: Yeah, indeed. It's season three, and we finally get to have with us Rev Lebaradian, VP of Omniverse and Simulation Technology at Rev, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you so much for having me. I'm a big fan of this show. I've watched every episode, and uh, I'm happy to to be on here with you guys.
1: Yeah, we're happy to have you with us.
2: That's cool. I'm so happy that you've watched every, every episode. So, Rev, as you know, then, we love to kick things off by asking folks their journey to the metaverse. And, look, I think you have a very inspiring story the way that you found computer graphics and found the Internet. So, please tell us about it.
0: Yeah, I mean, if, if we're going to go back into history, you might as well start from the beginning. Uh, I, I was really fortunate. You know, I'm a child of the 80s. And when I was um, very young, I was six years old when my, when my father decided to buy me a computer. This is 1982, I believe. Got a Commodore Vic 20 and I just, I just love this thing. It, the, the fact that I could, the idea that I could come up with an idea and type, type something in and the computer does things that I tell it to do was just amazing to me. And so I stuck to it. A few years later, when I was about 10 or 11 in the mid eighties, 1985, the Amiga 1000 computer had been released. This was, uh, this was like a giant leap forward in, in computing at home, especially. It had 4,096 colors, that 16-bit sound. It could do animation. It could do all of these things. This is in the era when, you know, Max didn't get color for five years. PCs were still that amber and green monochrome. And um, I was reading a computer magazine that was talking about the Amiga. And then there was another article... Uh, right after it, which had a picture that I just couldn't make sense of. I, 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 I stared at this picture, and I couldn't understand what it was. Uh, there were two spheres floating on a checkerboard floor, and one sphere is transparent. The other one was uh, reflective, and uh, I read the article, and what I understood from the article was that that wasn't drawn, nor was it a photo, it was a computer algorithm, a program that generated the image. And at that moment, I was hooked. I was like, you know, I I've been wanting to draw my whole life. Half my family, my mother's side, they're all naturally artistic. They could draw from the moment they 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 could lift a pencil, but I couldn't do that. But I could program a computer. So I said, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. And uh, I I managed to find this amazing, uh, ASCII based newsletter called Ray tracing news on bulletin board systems. This is pre-internet. And then, and then, um, uh, through that, I learned how to, how to do some basic, uh, ray tracing and ray tracing mathematics, vector math and, and whatnot. I went searching for more. I found the internet because that's where all of this stuff originated. Turned out, turns out the guy who edited this, Eric Haynes, um, one of the greats in computer graphics history. He works here now, and I have the pleasure of working with him. That image that was <laughs> that image was Turner Whitted's uh, famous image uh, from the 1980 paper on ray tracing. I got to work with him too, so that led me to visual effects. The same year I turned 18 was the same year the web was born. It was the same year NVIDIA was born it was not, and Jurassic Park came out. It was 1993. So there's this huge demand for people who knew computer graphics in Los Angeles. And I managed to find my way into Warner Brothers and then into Disney. Um, I got into rendering naturally. So I wrote um, the hair renderer and hair system for Mighty Joe Young at Disney DreamQuest. And Then after that, I started my own company. I created my own renderer. And I licensed it back to a lot of the big studios, like Disney and Sony and and Digital Domain and all those. Until eventually, I I, I was called by NVIDIA, and this was at a, a very special moment in computer graphics history. Um, I had heard rumors that NVIDIA was working on programmable shading, which was a really really big deal. My my whole world was always offline offline rendering because I wanted to do uh, the highest quality things match reality as closely as possible and real-time stuff at that time, the real-time 3d was still too, too simplistic, uh, but with programmable shading that, ha- that held the promise that what we were doing in the offline world might become real-time. And so the, the things that, that we are creating for the movies, we might be able to experience and go, go be inside. So I joined Nvidia and started working on the first hardware shading language, CG. Uh, I was one of the first few people to work on that. And I thought, you know, it'd only be a few years before we got to, to offline quality and totally r- real time and be immersed in it. Turns out it took a little bit longer than that. It's been 20 years now. And so, so in the time that I've been here, this is what I've been working towards the whole time is trying to, trying to make, uh, what what we've been doing in the offline visual effects world real time so we can apply it to everything uh once it becomes interactive and immersive everything everything will change
1: absolutely it's fantastic so let's talk about omniverse i mean this is uh you know this is one one project that near and dear to your heart when did it start it again just for the record
0: well it depends on how you, how you measure when it started in some ways i've been working on it uh you know the whole time i've been here or even before it's been like a progression uh an evolution towards it we started calling it omniverse in 2017 okay yeah and, uh, that that's that's when we called it and then even the definition of it like started evolved past that but for at least five years uh it's been called omniverse fantastic Look, so
1: so tell us tell us about Omniverse and and uh, what what's uh, Nvidia is trying to achieve with Omniverse.
0: Um, yeah, so if you look at Nvidia a- Nvidia from the beginning, you can kind of divide uh, Nvidia's history into three eras. Uh, all along, we've been essentially doing the same thing: we build computing systems, computers, and the and the stacks to to accelerate. Um, algorithms that solve really, really hard problems. The first problem we went to attack is rendering, which is a form of physics simulation, if you think about it, right? It's it's a simulation of how light interacts with matter. Um, We use it primarily for entertainment purposes, for generating beautiful imagery for video games and visual effects and and whatnot. But really what we're trying to do is simulate how light interacts with matter so that we can create those images. Um, Once we introduced programmable shading about 10 years into NVIDIA's history, that opened up uh, possibilities to accelerate different types of algorithms. That's when we introduced CUDA that um, allowed us to to build supercomputers and high-performance computing systems to accelerate simulations of general physics. You could use it for seismic analysis and uh, medical imaging. You could use it for uh, weather weather prediction and so on and so forth. Uh, about 10 years ago, so 10 years after that, um, a new era for NVIDIA became, uh, came into existence. On top of CUDA, uh, the, the whole deep learning AI revolution was born. The first... Thing that sparked this was at the University of Toronto, you know, some grad students, Alex Krzyzewski and Jeff Hinton's group. They uh, they took an old idea, neural networks, a bunch of new data that that was now available because of the internet, and combined it with essentially a supercomputer that was in their gaming system, on a gaming GPU, and were able to to do things that had previously eluded computer scientists. Uh, we. We Up until that point, we had had no way of creating an algorithm that could reliably tell the difference between a cat and a dog in images. And so overnight, that changed everything. Now we could write software that writes software. And when that happened, everything kind of changed. We, um, we realized that the way software is going to be created, the most advanced software, uh, software that simulates intelligence is fundamentally different than how all of the software we've created before ha- has been created. In order to create this new software, these new algorithms, you need a um, uh, an immense amount of data. And this data um, has to be very specific. And it has to, in most cases, match the real world. So for example, if we want to create robots like the ones that we're trying to make to drive on our roads out there, these self-driving cars. Uh, we need we need algorithms that give, give these robots intelligence to understand the world around them. They're going to see that world. They're going to perceive. And in order to do that, to create those algorithms, we have to feed the training mechanism, the way we create it with, with data, Which is another way of saying we're going to feed it with life experience. We're going to, we're going to give it hours and hours and hours of experience of seeing things so it can learn much like how humans learn when they're born as babies. We learn how to see how all creatures learn. Uh, and, and it, um, became clear to us pretty early on that the only way we're really going to be able to do this is by synthesizing that life experience for these robots. We're not going to be able to gather all this information from the real world. We just are limited by time and space and, and cost. And, and in many cases, you know, there's just, um, uh, it's impossible to, to get some of the data you need. We're unethical. You know, if we want to have our robots be intelligent enough to not drive and drive over children and hit them when they're on the road, we need them to experience what it's like to have a child in front of them. Uh, in every weather condition, every lighting condition. So how are we going to create this? And, and the conclusion we came to was, well, we need to simulate it. We need to create simulations of these virtual worlds so that we can have these new intelligences we're creating be um, born and raised inside these virtual worlds. Uh, and it turns out all of the accelerated computing we've been doing all these years have all the ingredients for the things we need to construct the worlds, rendering physics simulation and the new AIs we're creating to populate those virtual worlds to begin with or help us build it. And so Omniverse basically came from that. We started building um, the computing stacks for self-driving cars, for robotics and, and essentially digital twins of the advanced things we're trying to build internally here. And, and we, uh, uh always try to 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 use all of the tools everything that's already available out there before we create something new but when we see that there's a gap uh, that there's um something that's missing that we need and nobody else is building it then we we go build that thing but we we try to bias towards connecting to all of the things that already exist there so we don't have to duplicate effort so you see this with Omniverse. Omniverse is, it's kind of two things. Uh, first, it's a system for aggregating or connecting all of the tools and data sources you might have for building virtual worlds. Uh, we built it around USD, Pixar's USD, um, uh, op- open, open description of, of virtual worlds. Um, uh, so that, so that we could, not avoid having to build all the tools we might need to construct these worlds. We want we want to collect them all together, and and then we we've built a specialized computing stack for doing these kinds of simulations, designed to scale from relatively powerful computers like like our um, uh, Nvidia Nvidia workstations up to supercomputers that have. Many, many GPUs and many nodes so that you don't have to be make a trade off between, uh, accuracy and fidelity of your physics and world simulation and speed. That's kind of like the, the two sides of it. But in, um, in many cases, uh, we, we choose or we, we need to run simulations in different simulators. So just having the world all aggregated into this form, it's an open description, allows us to use any simulator or engine out there, potentially, uh, for for the particular problem at hand.
1: So, actually, I want, there's something I wanted to say there. So, so Raph, R- thank you for that. I think, you know, we we owe you, we, we have to give credit where credit is due. And we, we all have high anticipation on, on USD. and We all had the intuition that USD could be very powerful, but, I think it took you, your team, and Omniverse to actually prove it out to you. And now the fact that USD is a candidate to become, quote-unquote, the HTML of the metaverse. I mean, yes, it's due to the brilliance of the the Pixar engineers uh, and Guido and the people who invented that. But I think without the work of your team to prove it out, uh, I think that has massively accelerated uh, the fact that we can consider uh, USD for such a prominent role that we are currently having the conversations around at the metaverse standard forum. So I think, you know, I think we owe this to you and to your team that we a lot of a lot of us, including, you know, I would I would include us, Epic, we, we, we dip our toe in the USD water a little bit. We've done some of it with it, but you guys have been all in and really pushed it to a level that makes us really comfortable to think it's gonna be an important role. So just wanted to call this out and thank you for that.
0: Yeah, I think, you know, from our uh, perspective, when we started this, we said, well, no, no one tool, no one simulator, no one engine is going to solve even our, all of our needs here at NVIDIA, let alone all of the world's needs. But one thing that that's always uh, a huge problem for us anytime we want to do anything is just collecting all the data together, you know, when... When we wanna do a simulation of, of of our headquarters, like when we built this building here, I'm in mean, NVIDIA Endeavor, our second to last building, Voyager is next door. We ran simulations of uh, how, how, the, how light would interact with this building. We had skylights that allowed a lot of light through, lots of windows on the sides. When we ran the simulations, we found out that had we had built it with the original design, we would fry our employees, all the humans that were in here. It would have been way, way too hot. So they had to resize everything down and and, and fix it. So that would have been a very expensive problem to solve later. We solved early on. But just getting that data of the building and all of the uh, uh, furniture and all the things that we need to put inside there to run that simulation is a nightmare. And And it's because everybody's speaking different languages. All of this data lives in different islands elsewhere so it was clear to us early on that that's the first problem that needs to be solved we all have to talk the same language if we can't then we have no hope of even of simulating whole worlds because all of the stuff being put into the real world here is the digital versions of it live in different islands so so looking around we're like well we could create something from scratch but that always sucks. It's never a good idea to, to, to start from the beginning. Then you have to convince everybody to use that and convince them that you don't have nefarious evil purposes behind doing that to lock them in and all that stuff. When, when we saw that Pixar had done this, that they open sourced it. Um, that was, that was an aha moment. Like, wow, Pixar has been building large virtual worlds for longer than any other, any, any other company, any other group in the world. Uh, and they've been using all these different tools for with different uh, people with different skills, all working simultaneously together for longer than anyone else. What they've built is probably probably pretty good, and there's probably a lot of wisdom imbued inside that system. It, we're certain it's far from perfect and far from what we need, but better to start from something that exists and builds on top of that wisdom than than to to build something from scratch
2: right yeah look i agree with the whole philosophy especially enabling everyone to work together and the challenges of collecting all the data and making it interop. so when you look at usd i mean how do you think it will evolve over the next few years
0: well uh i mean you guys were at siggraph with me and even in the metaverse course like there was a lot of usd talk there uh i think this year it was pretty clear that we've kind of it's tipped over. I think there's a lot of momentum behind USD and a lot of, a lot of people in different industries have come to the realization that it's the best, the best option we have to do, to do this. Uh, there's a lot of work that still needs to be done, but I feel like everybody is coming together in good faith now. Uh, wanting to, to extend it and build it in an open manner so that, so that we can have this interoperability to everybody's benefit if we can communicate with each other uh and and i think history has shown that right on the on the web with the html analogy there were points in time where some pla- some actors were trying to to kind of lock html and the web uh, away from us and that just didn't work out ultimately uh eventually we got to html5 which was dev- open and more advanced than all of the Proprietary technologies that people tried to insert into the web, into that, uh, in that time frame, and and I think we can skip all of that stuff now. Let's just go straight to, to what the the right answer is going to be anyway.
1: Yeah, and it probably needs we need to turn it into a real standard more than an open source library.
0: Yes, well that's that's a whole separate discussion. Splitting the standard from the library, and uh, I think that's that's inevitable. We just have
2: to figure out how to do it. Cool, and and Rev, speaking at the Open Metaverse course at SIGGRAPH, so for season three, episode one, we had Neil Trevitt back on the podcast and Mark and I were telling Neil that, you know, we just tried to invite all the right folks to come to that course, right? Technologists with a vision. And it turned out that they all were interested to talk about USD, right? So that's kind of the, you know, the industry speaking. So we thought that was cool.
1: Yeah, it was not rigged. We did not organize a USD conference. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, it, it it it's turning out to be the right answer and there's a lot of smart people on that course who were peering into the future and so they're they're seeing the right answer. But a lot of it was about all the things that USD needs to have that it doesn't have yet. What all the gaps are to get there. It's great. That's the discussion we want to have.
2: And Rev, that was a great segue in terms of peering into the future. So one thing that you talked about that I thought was super inspiring at SIGREF was giving people superhuman powers, right? And we just talked a little bit about digital twins and simulation, uh, but you also spoke about real-time synchronization between the real and physical world and how that could enable teleportation or traveling to the past or the future, or even a modified future. Do you want to tell folks about this?
0: Yeah, I think a lot of the metaverse talk right now is largely about fanciful more entertainment oriented things. You know, people when you say metaverse, they imagine something like Ready Player One or uh these this idea of essentially a large social space or a video game, which definitely it, I believe will be a huge part of the metaverse, of course. Uh, but, but if you think about the metaverse as, as an evolution, as a continuation of the internet, it's a new mode of interacting with the internet. Um, of course, uh, we do more on the internet than just entertain ourselves than just socialize. We use the internet for work. We use the internet to build things. We use the internet, uh, to operate, uh, our companies and machinery and all, all kinds of stuff. So all of those things are going to also be important in the metaverse. And, and a key thing that we need for the metaverse to be useful for all these other things is a link back to this reality, the one that we're in. Um, for entertainment purposes, uh, you almost want the opposite, right? You want to go escape. You want to go into magical worlds. You want to be a superhero. You want to do all, all that stuff. But for, for all the other stuff we do in the world and life, it's important that, that the, the Internet and the things that we have in there reflect the, the real world. Uh, and, and if you extend this to a 3D spatial immersive Internet, if you can make that link happen between the real world and this form of the Internet, then you get these superpowers I was talking about. So the way I think about it, the first one you get is kind of the no-brainer one is teleportation. If if you have something in the real world, the example I, I think I use there is a factory. If if I have a factory like the one we were we've been showing in in a lot of our uh, GTC keynotes, the BMW one, and and you have this link where where the state of your factory, you know, all of the uh, 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 joint angles of every robot that's operating in the factory, the position of the conveyor belt, where all the poses of the humans that are in the factory. If you can gather all of that information and quickly send it to the metaverse, to the digital twin, to the, to the virtual version of that thing, and have it match close enough. Then effectively, anybody who, who has access to that virtual version will be teleporting to that factory. They can go experience that factory, assuming that the simulation, including the rendering and and the physics and everything that's happening there, matches. It's kind of the same thing. And if you can record that state, the state of the factory over time, um, then you get the ability to essentially rewind. You can you can jump back to the past to whatever you have recorded that's still stored in your in, in your in your storage. Uh, and so now you get you get some kind of time travel. If you want to go debug your factory, there was a problem somewhere in the line. Anyone who has access to that anywhere in the world can go back in time and go see what happened. Uh, but it gets really, really powerful when you have a simulator that's accurate enough to predict the future for the things that you care about. So for the factory, if, if you can make a simulator that would uh, predict... That you're going to have a failure a minute from now uh then 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 now you have the potential to peer into the future you can teleport to any part of that factory and look at that future and if you can do that simulation faster than real time faster than our time out here then you can run many possible simulations in that same period of time and you can do experiments you can say well what if i tweaked my factory around i changed the speeds and feeds of the conveyor belts, of my robot configurations, the amount of energy I'm using, how can I optimize for energy, for human safety, for all these other things. And I can search for the best possible future and go implement that one instead of uh, instead of just waiting for whatever to happen before I know, uh, b- before you uh, actually implement it in real life. So that pattern I think applies to just about everything. Uh, if, you can, if you can reflect the real world, whatever it is, whether it's a factory, whether, uh, whether it's your car, whether it's a, uh, uh, the whole earth, you know, whatever it is, if you, can, if you can reflect it accurately enough, you can make that link between the real world and, and uh, the virtual one, and you can create a great simulator that can be accurate enough in its predictions, then you gain all of these amazing superpowers.
1: Yeah, and no, absolutely. That's a fascinating perspective and I think what you guys are showing tells us that it's around the corner.
0: Yeah, I think I think it's going to be this is one of those awesome endless tasks, you know. It's like the in my from my view, I think this is the grandest of all computer science challenges, simulating the world in all its glory. You know, it's it's endless cuz we you can't you can't actually build a computer that's big enough to simulate everything down to the quantum level in the universe. You need uh, a computer that's orders of magnitude larger than our universe to do that. Uh, so, but, but in order for it to be useful, we don't necessarily need that for the specific things that, that we need to predict the future about where we need to teleport. We can s- get close enough already with a lot of the things, uh, a lot of the technologies we have today to do some really useful things.
1: Yeah, wonderful. So let's zoom, zoom back a little bit and, and look at uh, NVIDIA as a whole. I think uh, we're seeing a company that does a lot of vertical integration, you know, from GPUs to servers, to networks, uh, to clouds, to software layers, lower over layer application software layers. So at the same time, we feel a company that's, that's committed to open. So how do you maintain openness at every one of those levels? and? what's 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 your strategy there
0: yeah, yeah that's that's really really good question because it is something that's somewhat unique about us compared to to many other companies fundamentally um you know Nvidia is a technology company and there are many technology companies out there but um we see ourselves as a pure technology company and by that i mean our product the thing that we actually sell, that we make money from is technology itself. We, we don't, we don't typically make end user solutions, uh, end user applications. The, the final thing we create a lot of technology. That's very hard to create. Uh, we go focus on the things we're particularly good at, and then we rely on others to take that and integrate it into, into their, their products, into their, their, um, uh, applications to their solutions and that's how we scale out that is that's fundamentally how nvidia works uh however the technology that we create is is essentially a special computing stack we don't build general purpose computers you know there's other companies that do that our computers from the start have always been specialized towards solving super hard problems that require uh much more of the stack in order to, to solve uh, computer graphics doing rendering uh, in real time you can't just do that with a cpu it's not enough to just have an isa like x86 or arm to do that you need to have lots and lots of system software you need uh, you need a very hefty driver uh, and and uh, you need deep understanding of the applications we have uh, an army of engineers that go and help uh, application developers and other uh, other developers like Epic uh, optimize their their software and their applications for our whole stack. And so, so we have these two things where we provide technology and we want others to go take take that technology and form it into solutions. But the kinds of uh, problems that we're attacking, they can't be solved only at, at the uh, one layer of the computing stack problem. They're full stack problems. So the way we do that is first, um, we have to, whenever we, we're addressing a new kind of problem, we have to have a deep understanding of that problem in order to build any layer of the stack correctly. You can't, for example, uh, create the algorithms and the computer for a self-driving car without actually making a self-driving car first. We we can't just go ask uh, uh, a car maker what kind of chip do you need, what kind of systems do you need, what what types of algorithms you need, because they don't know they it hasn't been done yet. So so we have a fleet of our own self driving cars or or the prototypes that we're building over here, not because we plan on building those cars and manufacturing them, but because we need a deep understanding of uh, of the problem to. To even just go implement any layers of the stack. Once we have that, we have these different layers. We're more than happy to, to license or, or provide this technology at, at any layer to anyone who wants it. We're not offended if somebody only wants our chip. If you want, only want our chip and you don't want the rest of the stuff for, for your self driving car. So be it. That's okay. Go ahead and, and go build on top of that. But if you want that too. Uh, we will license you the the stacks the stack above it uh, but the mere fact that we actually built that stack made the chip better you benefited from it regardless of of whether whether you license it or not
1: yeah this concept of dog footing is a very impor- very important in technology you can actually tell who who does and who does not
2: so, rather switching gears, we want to talk a little bit about AI. So, Nvidia has been such a leader in applying AI to computer graphics, and I know that you're such a proponent for for AI for the metaverse. So, would love to hear what you have. Ex- what's exciting you in AI today?
0: Yeah, I mentioned earlier how we we've been building Omniverse so that we can go create AI. We we believe that it's a it's a fundamental prerequisite that there's no way we're going to create advanced AI unless we have world simulators and and unless we build high fidelity virtual worlds that we could go uh, train them in but the uh, but the universe is true as well. We believe that in order to advance computer graphics to advance uh, virtual worlds and simulations, uh, we need AI we can't actually create all of the worlds that we need to create. Without the assistance of these artificial intelligences, if you think about it, there aren't that many people in the world today that can create a high fidelity virtual world. They're either at you know AAA game companies or visual effects studios. I don't know what that exact number is, but I would imagine you know we'd be lucky if there's a hundred, two hundred thousand people in the world that could really do to, to do this. That's obviously not enough if we're going to have a metaverse where where uh everyone is participating in inside these virtual worlds Uh, the thing that made the internet and the web in in specific so successful was that it was created by everyone anyone can go create html you know anyone can go create a web page anyone can go upload a video and and become a youtube star and, and create a, a podcast these days. You know, it's not limited to just a small number of people. But that's unfortunately not true for 3D. Creating 3D virtual worlds is just extremely hard, and it's, it takes decades to master just, you know, very niche aspects of the, of the craft as a whole. And so, so we need AI to democratize the, the creation of virtual worlds. AI is going to help us ingest the real world and turn it into, into virtual world so we can have digital twins of the real real things. and then we're going to be able to use those, those things we collect from the real world to remix them and recompose new ones. And AI assistance will help us generate new things and, and create new new designs in there because you know every human, every child has a virtual world or numbers of them trapped in their minds. You know, when you talk to a six-year-old, they'll tell you all about these virtual worlds and they communicate them to you with words, uh, uh, incepting your mind with with their with their vision. Um, we want every, every child to be able to actually turn that into a real virtual world in the metaverse. The, the key to that is it has to be AI. There's no other way we're going to be able to do that. You need an AI to understand what that child is saying and convert it into the triangles and texels and 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 rigs and all the other things that are so so hard to create right now.
1: Yeah, I agree and in the spirit of giving credit where credit is due, I mean AI denoising is how you know we got ret- you know real-time rendering. We're wondering will we ever have enough compute to to to, to ray trace worlds but the the thing is we guess as many rays as we actually compute them now with AI denoising and so we got this boost in performance. And that's, that's accepted now. That's a given that we do AI denoising, and we're going to see so many more of those examples moving forward.
0: Yeah. I mean, AI basically comes down to all AI is, is, is like the ultimate function approximator generalized, right? Like you can take any function, whatever it is. And if you have enough data and if you have enough computing power, you can train, train this network, the system to approximate that function. So denoising is just one of those one of the first functions that we're doing that with, but we should be able to eventually extend them to do others. And we're seeing all this magic in the two D world with Dolly and and uh, uh, this stable diffusion um, uh, algorithms. We want to see more and more of that come to the three D world. That's where it becomes really useful, as far as I'm concerned.
1: Absolutely. All right, so we've, we've covered a lot of topics. Uh, we were uh, super happy to see uh, NVIDIA as part of the founding companies raise their hand when, for the Metaverse Standards Forum uh, to, to join uh, the initial group of companies. What are your expectations for the forum?
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, really, I'm really glad that um, Neil, Neil pushed this, creating the Metaverse Standards Forum. Um, I'm actually the one that signed the check for, our, for us joining it. Neil came to me with that one. Uh, I'm a little bit surprised at how much interest there's been. The, the, there's like almost 2,000 entities there, which is great. Like we love the fact that there's so much interest in the metaverse and people want want to discuss the standards. Um, but, but I think now we have to figure out what that means. Like, how do we deal with thousands of of people all all with their ideas of what the metaverse standards should be. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing how, how these, uh, I, I, don't know what, what Neil and you guys are calling it. It's like subcommittees or yeah domain working groups. Yeah. The domain working groups work out, uh, so that, so that we can get, uh, just the right number of voices who actually know e- each domain well enough to, to come together and, and, and Build it properly.
1: Yeah, that's the challenge: is managing an open process and making sure that the right person get a chance to to be heard.
0: Yeah, we want everybody to have a voice, but you know, not every voice is equal in terms of wisdom and experience. Uh, so, so you 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 want to bias and weight towards the ones that actually have done it a little more than those that haven't. But uh, we have Michael Castina from your team, so. I'm sorry? We have Michael Cass signed up from your team. So. Yes. Yes. We have Michael Cass and, and uh, Guy Martin as well.
2: Yeah. We didn't know that the Metaverse Standards Forum was going to get that big, that fast, right? It was kind of a surprise that we went from 35 to 1600 in, in maybe two months or so. But yeah, Mark and I have constantly been saying, hey, Neil, okay, this is cool, but how do we organize? and, and or-?
0: What is the number you expected? I mean I'm surprised too. I I didn't think that many uh people would be willing to go sign up and and actually do that. Being in f- standards forums and stuff that's not the sexiest uh thing out there, right? Like people shouldn't tr- usually avoid that like the plague.
2: Yeah, I mean we were originally interested in 3D asset interoperability, just that scope, which is a big scope, and you know the so uh, with that, I think we were thinking, I don't know, Mark, like 10, 10 people maybe or 10, 10 organizations. But uh, the swath of metaverse is, is big. So, yeah, I'm excited to see where, where it can go.
0: you were just off by two orders of magnitude, maybe three by the time we're done with this.
2: So, so Rev, as you know, we like to wrap up the episode with, with two questions. And the first one is, are there any topics that we didn't cover that you want to talk about?
0: I, we talked about almost everything uh, I love. Uh, we talked about computer graphics and AI, the metaverse, about computing history. Uh, I, I really, I really can't think of anything uh, that I could summarize in in like a minute. That would be in addition to that.
1: And so the other question, as you know, is: uh, Is there a person, institution, organization that you would like to give a shout out to today?
0: well uh i i touched upon it earlier i think pixar i'd like to give out a, a big shout out to um uh what we've built with omniverse and what and the now what the industry is um uh, is starting to move towards with usd in general that couldn't have happened without their with their foresight and the risk they took by opening it up so early uh they put it out there in 2015 and they've been engaged with the community, uh, you know, sharing their, their most valuable resources, their engineers with the, with the rest of us in the community for this period of time. And now they're doubling down on that. So I'd like to give a shout out to all of the Pixar folks, particularly in the USD community with Spiff and, and, uh, the great people that are, that are still at Pixar, uh, working on this. And Steve may for, for, uh, uh, funding it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, Rev LeBaradian, VP of uh, Omniverse and Simulation Technology at NVIDIA. Thank you for sharing your passion and your, your expertise. Uh, again, kudos on the Omniverse project. I mean, you guys are really leading, uh, uh a lot of, uh, you know, a, a lot of interesting tracks, so thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. This is fun. And Patrick, we want to thank our audience, telling people, you know, hit us on social, let us know what you like, don't like about this podcast, let us know who you want to hear from. And uh, Patrick, thank you so much as well. Uh, Rev, thank you very much again, and we will see you guys for another episode soon. Thank you.